Tex and Kyle in the Middle Show with your host, Craig Allen. If you're tired of seeing the media cater to the far right or the far left, if you're sick of talking points from the extremes, if you would rather hear about ways America could get along, then you're listening to your new favorite guide from the political void, also known as the middle of America politics. Let's join our host for an entertaining look at politics. Here's Craig Allen. Welcome back again and happy Halloween, everyone. And thank you for continuing to download our podcast. Our listenership is growing and I want to thank all of you for that. I want to thank Will J again as he is always a great announcer and does a fine job. We will look forward to hearing more from him again later in this program today. In our new segment, we call it What's Up with Will J. We will explore some Halloween topics with him today, and we will find out who is the scariest politician in the land and who is the ookiest and spookiest president of them all. And today we will also talk about a true great American hero, even on this spookiest of Halloweens, as opposed to a monster, this woman was an angel bringing hope to many and help to so many soldiers across the land. Her gift to modern mankind is one of the greatest in all of history. We will discuss the extremely scary, disturbing, and horrific topic of abortion. Yes, it's tough to talk about. Yes, no one likes to talk about it, but we're going to tackle it. We will also look at both sides of the abortion debate. In a chilling new segment called, Is It Crazy Fear or Is Our Fear Crazy? We look at which Americans might be the scariest of all. It isn't just your kids this Halloween that you might need to fear running around out here. Stay here to find out who you might need to find it crazy to fear. Or perhaps maybe we should be really, really frightened of. And in our joy-killing moment of the week, we find out that some millennials and Gen Xers really are scared of something. And I discovered that most Americans now have a mistrust that goes really, really deep, and they find something very, very creepy. Also, are you afraid of witches? (laughs) Or what would even be more horrendously diabolical? A real witch? or something like the Salem witch trials going on in modern America today. Stay with us for that. And we cannot be scared of everything. In our Inspire and Admire segment today, we look at Democratic Governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. We take a look at how he inspired me this week. Please stay with us as we get into our third great episode of Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. But with All Hallows' Eve here, we find some spooky stuff. (laughs) A witch here, a monster there, a fiend over there. First, though, let's talk about an angel. In our great American hero segment, we talk about Clara Barton, a visionary, a founder of the great American Red Cross. Clara Barton was born on December the 25th, 1821 in Massachusetts. By the time she started school at the age of four, she could already spell three syllable words. She studied philosophy, chemistry, Latin. She loved to sit around the table and listen to her father tell stories of the Revolutionary War. She was very, very shy, but she had an intellectual gift 
and she had an instinctual gift for taking care of others. Her brother fell ill at 11, her brother David, and needed serious help. And for two years, she helped nurse him back to health. And she learned so much from the doctors who came to care for him and the other nurses. And she just soaked it all in. And by the time she was a teenager, they were encouraging her to be a nurse. But first, she became a teacher. And there are so many great people all across this land who are teachers. But at that time, all of them, almost all of them anyway, were men. She went on to found a school, but was not allowed to be the principal of the school that she founded because she was a woman. She then became one of the first women to work in the federal government. She faced sexism, frankly, at every level, and she faced it working at the U.S. Patent Office. She said at first there was no one to complain to me, but as she went along, people made fun of her, picked on her, and finally, when James Buchanan became the president, she was fired because they found out she was an ardent abolitionist. She grew up in an abolitionist household, and he apparently used this to get rid of her. However, once the great emancipator became president, President Lincoln, he returned her job to her. But this led to the beginning of something great. Her lifelong inspiration came to her. She had become a self-taught nurse, taking care of her brother, and had become interested in nursing all through the time growing up. When she learned that many of the wounded from the first battle of Bull Run had suffered many, many serious injuries and wanting to help them and finding out that they didn't have the medical supplies they needed. She immediately resigned from the patent office to work as a volunteer. She advertised for supplies and distributed bandages, socks, and other goods to help the soldiers. And this is what led her to help some of the first soldiers. Some of them were children that she had taught. The relief operation was successful. In 1862, U.S. Surgeon General William A. Hammond granted Clara a pass to travel with army ambulances, quote, for the purpose of distributing comforts for the sick and wounded and nursing them, end quote which she did for the next two years. She called many of the soldiers her boys. Clara refused to take a salary from the government and dedicated herself to aiding soldiers at the front. Never before had women been allowed in hospitals and camps, which is why she needed the pass to begin with. Most women weren't even allowed close to the front. They weren't allowed on battlefields, they weren't allowed in hospitals or anywhere. So initially, she had to get help, but military officials and civil officials, even with the passes, declined for her help. They declined to let her in. They even declined some of the supplies that she brought. Eventually though, because of her personality and the way that she was, she gained their trust and began bringing in supplies. She once spoke about helping the troops during the war. She said, I always tried to succor the wounded until medical aid and supplies could come. I could run the risk. It made no difference to anyone if I were shot or taken prisoner. This is when Clara became known as an angel the angel of the battlefield during the Civil War. She was nursing at Bermuda 100 and it attracted national notice. She formed her only formal Civil War connection with any organization when she served as superintendent of nurses in Major Benjamin F. Butler's command. She followed army operations throughout the Virginia theater and in the Charleston, South Carolina area. And as a result of her untiring work, she became known as the angel of the battlefield. That's what he called her. 
She got to know Abraham Lincoln really well during this period, and soon he gave her permission to open the Office of Missing Soldiers, finding that most of the soldiers that got seriously injured or seriously sick couldn't reconnect with their own families. And she helped reconnect more than 20,000 injured and sick soldiers with their families across the nation. Tirelessly, she worked to overcome sexism and gain access to helping soldiers on both sides. It was during this time, though, that her eyes began to open about American politics, and she said, I most devoutly wish that intellect, education, and moral worth decided a voter's privileges and not sex or money or land or any other unintelligent principle. In November 1867, Barton met Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they influenced her to help in the cause of women's suffrage. Yes. She was giving lectures to soldiers and veterans, did include calls for change in her lectures, but she never really gained a real surge for the cause of suffrage. Her main love was helping people. Yes. Helping people in the way of taking care of the sick and the wounded and those that needed her. In 1869, she learned about the Red Cross. She was traveling in Switzerland when the Franco-Prussian War broke out. She learned about a European movement called the Red Cross. At that time, it was a voluntary effort, mainly to be neutral during war and help both sides so that humanitarian work could be spread. She wanted to see if learning about the organization could help, maybe in the US, and they came to her. <laughs> they found out that she was there. She had become so famous, even worldwide, that the Red Cross there wanted to get her involved to see if they could spread it over here. After returning home in 1873, she began to realize that the Red Cross could help here during wartime. And she began to see a vision where the Red Cross could help in other ways, in times of disaster, in times of flood, fire, etc. Many important American politicians, though, didn't want any organization here like the Red Cross, didn't believe it could be useful, didn't believe anybody would help, didn't even believe anybody would give. <gasps> To the Red Cross. They hoped nothing like the Civil War also would ever happen again, so they didn't believe that anything like that would be needed. But Barton kept tirelessly working, and she worked on President Chester Arthur, and that would prove helpful because finally, in 1881, the American Red Cross was open for business. The charter was approved. She was 59 years old, and it was her fifth career at this point, and she finally was just getting started. It took her eight long years to get it going, but working within the U.S. political machine, she started the first Red Cross chapter on May the 21st, 1881. She worked tirelessly to support many efforts through the Red Cross. She even went back overseas and inspired the American Amendment to the International Red Cross, where she pushed to have neutrality so that the Red Cross could help both sides. She worked to help all. She supported victims of river floods in 1882 and 1884 here in the US. She helped with the Texas famine of 1886. She helped with the Florida yellow fever epidemic in 1887 and an Illinois earthquake in 1888. But the first big test for the American Red Cross came on May the 31st, 1889, when a huge disaster happened. The dam protecting Johnstown, Pennsylvania broke. It was a poorly maintained dam and 20 million gallons of water flooded into the town. 2,000 people died, hundreds went missing. Clara showed up with 50 doctors and poured into the town just days after the event. They stayed there for six months. Donations of food, lumber, clothing poured in. And 
America began to trust her with everything. She traveled then to Cuba at the request of President McKinley to support the troops in the Spanish-American War. At first, she was treated poorly by the military because she was a woman. They did not believe a woman or women in general should be near the battlefield. But Barton persisted in helping, and despite the sexism there, she helped many. In fact, this really changed the world for the next hundred years. As the Navy and others saw her work, they began to let her and her immediate staff have access to soldiers and the wounded. When the, when the U.S. refused assistance based on sexism, Barton and her team helped the Spanish. Cuba was so impressed by her that they started a Cuban Red Cross. Still, even after all her help, before 1900, opposing groups were still popping up across the country. The U.S. still hadn't formally adopted the Red Cross Charter. And on June 6, 1900, Congress finally pushed it through for Clara Barton, making the Red Cross official in the United States with a full charter. This is where things really changed. And the biggest help came from the Red Cross. On September the 8th, 1900, a hurricane with no name, because they didn't name them then, struck Galveston. The Weather Bureau has since classified it as an intense category for a hurricane, but judging by the damage, judging by the fact that the Weather Bureau in Galveston had its wind vane blown off once the winds passed 125 miles an hour, I doubt the assessment personally. I believe it was a category five, or at the very least, it had just lost its category five status when it washed ashore. The destruction in Galveston was immense. The death toll was around 8,000 to 12,000. After studying the disaster, it may have even been close to 15,000. There were many missing people reported around the country and around Texas after the event. There were many that were never accounted for even in Galveston. In any case, I challenge you to look at pictures of this devastation and disaster untold. It's still the worst disaster and loss of life in American history as far as the death toll. Half the city of Galveston was destroyed. In fact, three or four city streets from the original Galveston are now under the sea. Clara Barton and her Red Cross showed up here big. She was 78 years old when she arrived here and opened up her Red Cross offices, but many wanted her here, asked for her to come. They needed her. Barton initially showed up with relief for children mainly because she expected to find so many orphans. Instead, she found very few children. She realized the storm had been the hardest on this group. With the population of Galveston reduced by as much as a third from the original population, many wanted to leave the city and give it up altogether. They were afraid of another hurricane like this coming in. This is when she went into action. She didn't want them to give up on the city. She wanted the city to stay. She took over running the city for a while. She helped the citizens organize each other. She helped organize funding. She helped organize how the city would give out its donations. And she influenced the city to help Galveston form a whole new city style of government. Oh. It was super successful there and it began to spread across the country. It is called the commission form of government and is still used in this country. As it spread countrywide afterwards, it led to a greater spread of city councils and changed the way governments ran in the U.S. forever. You can go back to kindly Clara Barton for that one. She even helped save the strawberry industry in Texas when she found out that the hurricane had decimated strawberry plants, found out Texas was just going to give up on strawberries. She called for large donations of strawberry plants from all over, and within two weeks, she saved the industry. If you are ever in Texas and you eat a poteet strawberry or you ever have bluebell ice cream with poteet strawberries in them, you can thank Clara Barton. She was an awesome person. Clara Barton was the most decorated woman in American history at this point. 
She received the Iron Cross, the Cross of Imperial Russia, the International Red Cross Medal. Her final act was founding the First Aid Society. She retired from the Red Cross at 83 years of age, and she wrote a book about her life in 1907. Ah. She died on April the 12th, 1912, at the age of 90, after accomplishing so much for soldiers, the wounded, the seriously injured across the U.S. and the world, as well as so much for humanity here in the U.S., from the tornado and hurricane victim, flood and wildlife disaster victim, and the missing soldier. She was the first on the scene in many places for help and hope. My wife is small, and Clara Barton was about the same size as my wife and very slender, very small. But what is amazing about her is how tall people described her to be. Many people who talked about her afterwards said she was much taller and much bigger than she really was. Many thought she was of average height, even though she was really only five foot tall. What it shows is physical stature doesn't matter. No! You might be an Abraham Lincoln and be six foot four, or you might be a little five foot tall Clara Barton, but it's what's in your heart. Yes. It's about what you accomplish that makes you big or small. Yet, there were about as different in stature, Clara Barton and Abe Lincoln, as they could be. But how much more did they unite the country, in some ways together, than they did? She went into survival mode when she went into helping those in disaster and to backing our troops in foreign wars. Barton is a great American hero because she faced adversity, she faced sexism, she faced many things and overcame them. And she did so with care. She did so because she wanted to help. She did so because she wouldn't let anything stand in her way. Sometimes you need to stand for what is right bravely and do what she did. Yes. She certainly had help and support from many, including Presidents Lincoln and McKinley, but she started it herself for her brave efforts and how her legacy continues to live on as the angel of the battlefield and in the ways the American Red Cross helps so many across this country. They're the first to show up, the first there for aid, the first there for relief. We now say Claire Barton is a great uniting American hero. Next week, we will profile a musician that changed the world and many never even knew it. He helped integrate our country and bring us together. But next on our show, we will talk about the most frightening subject on Halloween. We will get into abortion in our poli sci for the normal guy segment. It is not for the faint of heart, so be warned that some of the content may be graphic, but is important to hear nonetheless. Otherwise, please continue to listen, and if you enjoy the program, let us know by making a comment or hitting the like button. We will be right back after this short break, and watch out for any black cats stirring around while you wait.
Thank you again for keeping it here and not taking out your earbuds or throwing your iPad out the window or unplugging everything from your car. No. Anyway, thank you for keeping it here and consuming us all across the land. We would love for you to tell someone about our program if you are enjoying it and send them the link or invite them to listen to the show. Now, please be aware that most of our shows will involve very family-friendly content, but on this eerie Halloween edition, Mm. we have chosen to tackle the most difficult of all political and social subjects, abortion. So if there are any young listeners, you may want to have them sit out for this portion. Just be warned, there will be some graphic descriptions of what we are covering today. In today's poli-sci for the normal guy segment, we are talking about abortion, the effects on elections, on America, on our national divide. I have written several papers on this subject. Abortion divides our nation about 50-50. It has for a good while. Why? Well, Marion Webster defines abortion as the termination of a pregnancy after, accompanied by, or closely followed by the death of the embryo or fetus, especially the medical procedure of an inducing expulsion of a human fetus to terminate a pregnancy. No matter what anyone wishes to call it, it results in the stopping of a beating heart. It kills the child growing inside. Abortions performed even late in pregnancy are called late-term abortions, which are ugly in themselves and are very controversial procedures when a child begins to become fully formed in the womb. The most barbaric and controversial methods of abortion are called partial birth abortions. These abortions have been performed after the 20th week of pregnancy and required that the fetus be cut up inside the womb. Now, I read some stuff on NPR about partial birth abortions, and a few gynecologists did not like the original methods of late-term abortions, which was known as dilation and evacuation because it involved blood loss and increased damage to the cervix. Some thought it could lead to the loss of the ability for this person having the abortion to bear children in the future. So two abortion physicians got together and developed variations on the procedure by extracting the fetus intact, meaning alive. Martin Haskell, one of the physicians who developed it, called this method dilation and extraction. It involves dilating the woman's cervix, then pulling the fetus through it, feet first until just the head remains inside. Using scissors, the head is then punctured and crushed, so it too could fit through the dilated cervix. This way, there is less risk to the mother. Abortion itself is a brutal thing, no matter how you look at it. And let's not forget, babies that are killed have no rights. No. Let's look at the other side of the argument. We've given the ugly part of abortion. Let's look at the other side, the ugly part for the woman, for the woman involved. This is what happens when we prevent abortions. It also prevents a woman from having control over her own body. Yes. She cannot do anything but have a baby. She may not want this child. She may, but she may not. This means that whether she wanted the person who is the father of this child to be the father of her child or children in the future, this person now will be 
by preventing the abortion. She must now take off from work as necessary for doctor's appointments, for checkups, to check on the child, to do anything that involves her health, anything that is going to inhibit her activities. She's going to have to maybe have bed rest. She may have all kinds of things that happens. She will probably need to take off from work when the baby is born, of course. If she has conceived this child in a relationship other than her primary relationship, such as she is married and the father is not the husband, she must now live with the consequences of this for the rest of her life. She must then decide whether to give up the child. She must then decide who will have control over the life of the child. She must then decide to face any medical problems that may arise from all of this, including the risks to her own health and that of the child. All of these are very tough consequences, which is why abortion debate rages hotly. Frankly, if you compare the two, one involves someone's complications in life and the other involves the termination of life. This is why I am personally pro-life. However, I do believe in exceptions. My exceptions to banning abortion would include first and foremost, the danger of the life of the mother, a rape victim, an incest situation, or even other medical complications as determined by doctors. As a compromise to keep abortions down in this country, I would even look at a federal law that says abortions can be legal through the first, let's say eight to 15 weeks and then make them illegal after that. According to many in the pro-life community, I am very, very pro-choice. Yes. <laughs> they would regard me as a crazy pro-choice nut. That's why we have so many problems. There's radicals on both sides. There's many in the pro choice community that would even hear me talk about exceptions and say, you're this, you're that. No. We've got to stop this. If we're going to find commonality on such a difficult issue, moderate America have to step up and come up with a way to solve this so that there are fewer abortions, there are safer abortions, or there are no abortions or very limited abortions and only in situations where it's absolutely necessary. Yes! Abortions have been greatly affecting our elections since Roe v. Wade. In fact, that's what made it affect our elections. Many based their voting on whether they thought Roe v. Wade could be reversed. Roe was never based on good law to begin with. Yes! The basis for Roe was that it violated the Constitution. The Constitution never references abortion. Oh. And therefore, the arguments about it were weak. And therefore, it was easy to overturn this decision. There is a concept in court law called stare decisis. It's a Latin term meaning to stand by things decided. So courts since Roe v. Wade have generally stood by the original ruling in Roe v. Wade because it was already decided law, especially decided by the Supreme Court. So even later Supreme Court decisions stood by it. This is the part of the reason why Roe was held up for so long. But in reality, I believe Roe was always doomed. It was never decided on good legal merits, and liberals have feared for its standing since the decision because of this. They knew it. Frankly, most knew it and knew it wouldn't survive for long. They have skewered every conservative judge at all levels since Roe decision was made. Big changes came, though, in the 2016 election. One of the biggest pro-choice candidates in history, Hillary Clinton, was on the ballot. There was a chance for many to support her or reject her based on abortion. No. There were some single issue voters in this election. In fact, probably more than we really realize because of the effects that happened afterward. On the other side was Donald Trump, a newcomer to politics and a huge pro-life ambassador. He was promising the overturning of Roe versus Wade. 
and most didn't believe him, including me, I'll be honest. <laughs> but some voted for him based on this single issue. He had a big part in putting some conservative justices on the high court, and this led to the Supreme Court overturning Roe in 2022. Aww. This was a surprise defeat for many on the pro-choice side who thought they had this won forever. But many women went for Trump yes! in this election, which was also a surprise to many in the political science community. <gasps> it was not a surprise to me. As I referenced before, I called the 2016 election two weeks beforehand publicly on Facebook. Before this ruling, Reagan and the two Bushes were elected with the idea of let's get rid of abortion, let's overturn Roe v. Wade. There was family values involved, there was the moral majority, which was a group of famous pastors that pushed through family values. Clinton and Obama's elections were just the opposite of that. There were rollbacks on some strict moralistic family law. Uh, These elections were not so much a referendum on the economy as many Reagan initiatives were still held in place and even energized, particularly by Clinton. It was a rollback on family values. As more and more Gen Xers and millennials began to vote in elections, their morals did too. Many in these generations are economically moderate or conservative. Most are lean to the conservative side, but they are much more socially liberal than previous generations. The call to vote on referendums of morality no longer played the heavy hand it did with previous generations. And I would even say to this that if you look at the Obama election, you saw millennials come out in huge numbers. Generation X is not as socially liberal as the millennial generation, which is by far the most socially liberal generation we've had in decades, centuries. The 2022 election was a reaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, so it went the other way. This was supposed to be a Republican cakewalk. Many close Senate elections were up for Democrats as well as some House seats. And I myself said the Republicans would take the House and take the Senate. They would probably get 225 to 30 seats in the House and 51 seats in the latter. That's what I predicted. I was right about the House in most ways. I almost got there, but I wasn't right about the Senate. The House vote was not quite as strong as I predicted, but the Republicans did retake it. In the Senate, though, there was a different matter entirely. And looking deeper into results after the fact, a lot of political scientists saw moderate Republicans voting for their Republican House member, but betcha. then turning around and voting Democrat in the <gasps> Senate. Some of them saw abortion weighing heavily on this as part of their decision, especially in key states like Nevada, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. In the end, the Democrats held the Senate, and the Supreme Court decision was the basis for this election. Why was this a surprise? Well, in most presidential first terms, and every political scientist knows this, presidents lose House and Senate seats in their first midterm. It's just precedent. The only president not to do so in the 20th century was George W. Bush, who gained a small number of seats in 2002. Ooh. It only takes one key issue, though to drive some voters and you can have a few changes in a few states that are purple and expected to be close. And that was the case here. So what's gonna happen next in the 2024 election? Right. Well, Biden is a Catholic. Many Catholics oppose abortion, some even opposing contraception altogether. And this becomes a tough case for Biden, which he narrowly survived the first time. But as I alluded to in my last podcast, the Gallup post showing our nation's political stances shows we've made a slight shift to the right over the last two or three years. 38% of us now say we are 
conservative or very conservative, up 8% in just the last few years. And those identifying as liberal or very liberal is down to our lowest number in quite a few years. It's down 5% just in the last two or three years. Those identifying as moderate has stayed about the same. In any case, when I see important purple states turning redder, like Florida and Ohio, uh. and an overall push to the right, I see Trump within Biden's reach in bluer than blue states. Yes, I've seen polling that shows Trump within reach of Biden in the state of New York. <gasps> this is stunning. New York hasn't gone for a Republican, I believe, since the 1980s. I'm almost speechless even trying to describe this to you. Trump is leading in most general election polls over Biden right now in the nation as a whole. He is seen as the man who made the debate change by installing the justices who are largely credited with overturning Roe. Where I see abortion playing out are in the large states where it will be close or somewhat close, and Biden can blame Trump for overturning Roe and get empty for that. States like New York, where it probably won't be close, but it looks very interesting right now. Michigan, Minnesota, Colorado, Nevada, even possibly New Hampshire, and Illinois, which also is looking interesting right now. These are states abortion may play in. Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and North Carolina are also states that are gonna be close, but historically have leaned red, won't play as well there for Biden. In any case, abortion will be a key issue. But as many political scientists have put it before, in American presidential elections, people vote their pocketbook first. I see this as more of an election on the economy, and with many in my family and friends talking about the costs associated with inflation being so very high, I see that as carrying the vote first and foremost. <laughs> well, coming up next, we're gonna get away from abortion talk and we're gonna talk about fear. Are you fearful this Halloween? Of the old owl in the tree? Or a creaky door? Or a vampire stalking you in the night? We will discuss what you really may need to be truly fearing in our newest segment called, Is It Crazy Fear or Is Our Fear Crazy? And later we will discuss all the younger people being scared of Frankenstein. But no, they're scared of a creepy skeleton in the closet. No, 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 no. They are really freaked out by something you may not even believe these days. And then finally we'll go to Maryland and meet Wes Moore. He's the Democratic governor. Don't worry, this is a story from the good files, yes. not the X-Files. And then we have some later segments coming up with some fun where we check in with Will J. And what's up with Will J? Yes. Please stay with us and we'll get his thoughts on some really, really scary political topics. Please stay with us.
Our show is called Lefty Lucy Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. And I am that Texan. And I do feel like I am caught in the middle of craziness sometimes in this country because all you hear, whether in the mainstream media or on the right or on the left, is that is the only opinions that matter. The right or the left, the crazy far right or the far left, and that those are the only choices that you have. Most of America is somewhere in the middle, though, (laughs) on most issues. However, out there lying somewhere is the crazy fringe, a scary fringe, perhaps a really, really frightening fringe. And that is where we are going next on this creepy Halloween edition of our show. We are calling this next segment, Is It Crazy Fear or Is Our Fear Crazy? There are many who fear the far right and far left in this country. I am not one who necessarily, what you would call dramatically fears them, but I am very dubious of them. And I do fear that they are leading us to absolute division and causing more problems and fights within our society and within our country than what is really there. You go to school events, you go to picnics, you go to barbecues, go to your church events, and there are lots of people there who don't agree with you on every issue. If you sat down with them, you'd find this person doesn't agree with you on this. We talked about abortion earlier. This person doesn't agree with you on that. But for most of these divisions, there are much smaller groups. I would call the fringe, the really, really fringe, the radical right wing and the radical left wing and the media. And they're much smaller than the media or the nuts on the internet make it seem to be. What about this very, very small percentage of people? Maybe it's only one to 2% who are the real nuts in our society. Perhaps they are not at your school or your barbecue or your picnic or your church to begin with. The Anti-Defamation League has dug into this since the Israeli war has begun and found out that anti-Semitic people in this country are three times more likely to support violence to achieve political goals. A survey of 8,000 Americans that was done along with the University of Chicago found that there are about 10 million or so Americans who particularly hateful of Jews. These people were found not on the right as the media tries to paint it to you. It's all on the right. The right hates the Jews. The right hates minorities. The right, no. Actually, these people were found on both the far right and the far left, extremes. Americans on the extreme right who hate Jews would promote the use of violence for political means to restore Donald Trump to the presidency, prevent his prosecution. Likewise, the Americans on the extreme left hold strong anti-Semitic views and attitudes were about twice as likely to support the use of force to restore the federal right to abortion. Like we talked about earlier, there's strong feelings about that. Promote and protect minority voting rights and prevent police brutality against minorities. There's a dangerous nexus between the increase in anti-Semitism across society and the deep distrust of long-standing democratic norms, institutions, and processes, says Jonathan Greenblatt. And he's the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And he says, this is not limited to one party or ideology. We found support for political violence on both the far left and the extreme right, both in anti-Semitic tropes and support for political violence go hand in hand, end quote. Now I'm a free speech guy. 
I don't think we should start pointing fingers at everybody or being frightened of every neighbor that you have. We should not take away someone's free speech rights until they yell fire in a theater, as an example, which is not free speech. That's what the Supreme Court says. We are talking about maybe one to two out of a hundred people. So as frightening as this sounds, what the Anti-Defamation League dug into, we are still not talking about the vast majority of Americans. No matter what the mainstream media tells you, it is as an American to have a right to your beliefs as it is to be an American. Still, there is an interesting finding in this survey that there is support on both sides for some type of divorce between red states and blue states. Uh. What type of divorce that is just depends on the person. There are three times as many people on both the right and the far left that believe they should ignore the Constitution and just do whatever they want. That's the radical right and the radical left in this country. Obviously, these people do not believe in the rule of law. No. They have no respect for our democracy. If they think violence solves anything in America, the vote, your pen, your computer, your voice, this podcast, everything that you do to say and express your opinion is mightier than their sword. Yes. And would be mightier than their sword because there's only one to 2% of them. They're a bunch of crazy nuts. Nobody's gonna believe them anyway. In this current Israeli-Hamas war, you can see the far left agitating things by siding with Hamas with these demonstrations on college campuses. This is not acceptable to most of society. And you see most of the media and talking heads pushing back on that. The moderate middle of America must speak up with a loud voice when we see crazy people starting to try to run things. We don't need contention when we are speaking out against violence, against terrorism. We must speak out strongly. We must speak out against really bad stuff happening. We must speak out with one world voice. If we don't, we leave an opening on the table for something more frightening than anything we can imagine. Go back to World War II. Go back to Hitler. Go back to those internment camps. If you want to see or think of something frightening or imagine something frightening in your head on this Halloween, there is nothing more frightening than that. And we don't want that to happen ever again. So let's brighten it up a little bit here. We've been a little scary and a little spooky and we're going to get away from the frightening and the ghouls and the goblins and the ghosts. And we're going to go to something much more inspiring. In our inspire and admire moment of the week, and we are going to discuss Westmore the Democratic governor of Maryland. This week he was on MSNBC. And I do, as I will tell you, I look at all different types of media in this country. And I happen to be watching MSNBC at one point this week. Moore is Maryland's first black governor and just the third in the United States as a whole. He is a graduate of Valley Forge Academy, was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army before earning a degree in international relations at John Hopkins. He was a Rhodes Scholar, received a master's degree at Oxford in 2005. He served our country well in the 82nd Airborne, being deployed overseas. He worked for Condi Rice in the Bush administration. He was elected governor without ever reaching any other political station beforehand. And he was elected out of a crowded field of 10 Democrats after it was vacated by the outgoing, very popular Republican governor who couldn't run for any more terms because he was at his term limits. And I happen to be watching MSNBC 
and he appeared to talk about the 25th anniversary of the Elijah Cummings Youth Program. He was so positive. He has such a beaming smile that draws you in. And when asked by the morning anchor to talk about Elijah Cummings, he said, quote, he helped us all to remember that public service is a way of life. And this was the most inspiring thing he said about Cummings. He said, when God introduces us to the world, he introduces us all perfect, all creations of him. And he wants us to live our life accordingly. And if we are all God's children, by definition, we are brothers and sisters and wants us to live that way, to live accordingly. And I thought back, isn't that what the Declaration of Independence says? That we're all brothers and sisters, that we're all created according to, you know, God's purpose and we're all created equal. And I thought about him and I thought, man, this guy's really on fire. So I did more research into him. I don't agree with all of his politics. I don't agree with every stance that he has, but he brings more positivity, love and kindness and Christian love to his job than a lot of governors do, frankly, across the country. He comes from a long line of Christian ministers although they're from varying Christian denominations. Moore and his family are members of a Southern Baptist church in Baltimore and have been there a long time, according to the Baltimore Sun. One quote I really liked from the paper said, as Moore was taking the governor's chair, he went to church and he said, just like now, just like tomorrow, just like always, regardless of our living in Annapolis, my church home is Southern Baptist. He was invited to speak with the 600 or so people in the sanctuary and they roared. And he said, I also know that even after Wednesday, even after we head to Annapolis, I know who my Lord and Savior is. I know who my God is. I know who my Father is. He shows his faith every day. I am inspired not by his certain political stances in Maryland, which do not affect me here in Texas, but I am affected by his love of his fellow man and his words about a man who truly reached across the aisle. I like seeing the fact that he works to unite not divide. The Elijah Cummings Youth Program has as its values, inspiring young people to find and use their voice as leaders, instilling respect for people of different backgrounds and thoughts, which is a great thing. We need more of that in this country. Honoring the legacy of Elijah Cummings and developing leaders to build bridges between diverse communities. We need more of that too. I like anything where we try to build bridges in this country. We sure as heck need it right now. We have some ooky, spooky divides, spooky anger towards each other, and some scary angst on this Halloween that should not be there. As we are all Americans, we are all in this together. We need more men like Wes Moore, not afraid to reach across the aisle, not afraid to stand up for their Christian values, even as a Democrat, and especially as a Democrat and inspiring and reaching across to many different groups. Well, coming up, we will get into the joy-killing moment of the week, where we will find out who or what our younger people are scared of all across the land. And we will find out what's up with Will J, our beloved announcer, who also knows a thing or two about Halloween. We will find out what is he scared of or What politician is he scared of? We will look back with a little bit of fright and fear and fun on this festive Halloween. (laughs) Also, find out a little bit more about witches. (laughs) On Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Thank you for joining us on this spooky, spooky day. (laughs) Please stay with us.
And we're back. We appreciate you finding and listening to our Halloween edition of the program today. We're trying to get America reunited with itself. Partisanship is a good thing. Uh, Let's be honest. But radical partisanship is awful. It's terrible. It leads to ugliness. It leads to fights and feuds that are not really even necessary in most cases. Politicians and the media want you to do their bidding. And they make it their job to make you think that every political issue matters everywhere. But the truth is that many won't affect you at all. Certainly there are some issues that affect your pocketbook or your child's school, but whether there is a push to increase a small amount of public transportation in one city or protect an endangered fish that lives only in far west Texas or to decrease taxes on a quarter of a percent on a small amount of housing in one area or to stop federally funded abortions in one county in Montana, really those things will never affect you at all. No matter what the politicians say, the media says, no matter what the political action committees say, no matter what the political parties say, it doesn't matter. They're trying to scare you on this spooky Halloween, (laughs) which gets us to our next portion of the program. I am calling this segment, This Ladies Could Be Hades. What is worse than Hades, ladies, or anyone else that's listening for that matter. On our Halloween edition, I decided to look at the very terrifying story of the Salem Witch Trials and how it might apply to today. The Salem Witch Trials began in the spring of 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts. (laughs) There had been plagues and Puritan fears about moral decline in society. Does it sound familiar to today, by the way? They were started by two young preteen girls and quickly spread to other girls about the same age, all claiming to be possessed by the devil. The person the girls first pointed to as the person who led them down this path was a slave, a woman named Tichuba, and two other poor women from the community, Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good. The Sarahs denied their guilt all the way, but Tichuba, who frankly I think was the most intelligent of anyone involved in this entire scenario, confessed to the crimes right away. The courts went easier on confessors and harder on those who denied their guilt. They particularly went easy on those who confessed and then named others as witches, which just leads to more problems. Tichiba was smart, though. She not only confessed, but named others as witches and soon to follow were more and more people until more than 150 people had been accused of being a witch in a really small town. There were courts held to try the accused. In all the courts, the young girls would writhe around, have crazed outbursts, report to seeing things that weren't even there, would see specters or demons or ghosts, they would talk to them. And these specters or ghosts were actually allowed to give evidence in the trials. They called this evidence spectral evidence. There were properties seized for those who were found guilty. Land transfers and greed went into these trials, which fed into fear and mass hysteria. It led to some 18 people being pronounced guilty of being a witch and ultimately executed, most by hanging. There were many, many more that were imprisoned. There was even a pastor hanged at the very beginning of this whole thing. Many were caught up in this hysteria, but some warned of its consequences. Increase Mather, who was the president of Harvard, and Cotton Mather, his son, a respected minister, all were against it and warned of its consequences. Eventually, the governor of Massachusetts put a stop to it all and finally got everyone back to their senses. And by 1693, all accused who had not been executed were pardoned by the governor. But the aftermath of this whole thing, the state of Massachusetts finally apologized for all of it in 1957. It took nearly two, 300 years to 
get everything together. And they did so to their descendants. The city of Salem is now regarded by some as the official city for witches. If you go there, there's witch stuff everywhere. (laughs) There's a memorial to the Salem witch trials in the actual home of one of the original witch judges, Jonathan Corwin. It's now called the Witch House. You can still visit the place where the people were hung. There are shops that sell items of witchcraft. There's a creepy cemetery where some of the burials actually took place. We don't even know where the witches were buried because they didn't mark the graves. It's really creepy. So how does this apply to today? Well, according to the Pew Research Center, the phrase cancel culture is said to have originated from an obscure slang term, the word cancel, going back to a breakup song from the 1980s. The term slowly gained traction on social media. In the last few years, cancel culture has become a hotly debated topic in the nation's political discourse. There's lots of arguments about it one way or the other, whether it's a way to hold people accountable or a tactic just to punish them or maybe a mix of both. Some even argue that it doesn't exist at all. But here's my proof that it does exist and how it ties into the witch trials. Roseanne Barr. Now, she's not a person that I like. I've never followed her, never been a fan, don't really like her. I'm just going to say it right up front. But she's a comedian known for saying a lot of crazy stuff. She had this really awful version of the national anthem that she did, a lot of profane things. She would make jokes out of things that frankly, I would not joke about. And a tweet that she put out changed her life in the blink of an eye. She was fired from her hit show and her career has never been the same. Comedian Nora McDonald came to her defense in 2018 after the whole incident and said, there are very few people that have gone through what she has, losing everything in a day. Of course, people will say, what about the victims? What about the victims? But do you know what? This is what he said. The victims didn't have to go through what she did. Are there any victims? Who read the tweet? I wasn't aware of the tweet until she was fired from the hit show. I'm sure there are victims. I'm sure there are people who were hurt by the tweet. And what really happened to them? How were they hurt? What did it do to them? The tweet was about President Obama. If there's any victim, he's the victim. The tweet said something about him being a product of the Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes. It's an awful tweet. Terrible. She has the right to free speech, but this is definitely not the speech I would prefer. No! It's profane, but she's always been like this. She's always said profane, awful, terrible things about lots of people, about lots of things. Yes! She's always been a product of a certain culture. This culture is mostly a culture I don't like. There is one thing about her show that I liked and that it promoted family, a very imperfect family, which I like, frankly. And it shows how the imperfect family has to figure out a way to make it through life. And I like the fact that it did this as opposed to most sitcoms, which try to paint the American family as perfect. And I think that was a really good thing for our culture. But she's a crazy person and she was a crazy person in the middle of the show. But the show was never as good without her and didn't do as well. They canceled her and canceling originally referred to killing someone off in the movies in the 1990s. It originally referred to kicking someone out of your life in that song. What are we doing in this case? In the Salem Witch Trials, except for one step further where they literally killed the person, they cut them off from society. They stole their livelihoods. They put them in jail. Are we killing someone off in the same way with cancel culture? Because we are personally, socially, monetarily, professionally, or otherwise (laughs) killing them off. We are not hanging them in reality, but we are in essence hanging them in society. We are definitely hanging them on social media. And why are we doing it? 
Who made us their judge? Who said what we know, what they meant by what they said in whatever tweet or whatever thing? Because some people, it's really obvious what they're saying. And frankly, some of them are getting exactly what they deserve by what they said, because it's pretty easy to read it and everybody to condemn and judge them. But some are jokes. Some are just things that the media or somebody tries to read into it and then tries to judge what they were saying. Mm. But they are going to get punished. We don't need to cancel them to get there. Who made you judge? Do you sit in the same seats of most of the judges in history when you cancel someone? Are you taking away their job? Are you putting them in prison? Thomas Maul was a Quaker during the time of the Salem witch trials. He was whipped three times, fined three times, and put into the prison five times by the Puritan government in Salem, Massachusetts, because he was a critic of the Salem witch trials. No. I looked him up because I mostly descended from the Quakers in the Northeast, and I look up to him. Had it not been for Maul, I might not be here. <laughs> for my sentence may have been wiped out by the Puritans. He said of the witch trials, for it were better than 100 witches should live than that one person be put to death for a witch, which is not a witch. Yes. He pressed other religious objections as well. Maul's objections eventually led to a more open and pure form of religious freedom in this country. It leads to tolerance. In fact, Maul was the eventual cause that illegal experts point to that opened up the Supreme Court to rule that the Establishment Clause, which protects against a government's endorsement and imposition of a religion, was really a separation of church and state. Atheists can thank a Quaker every time they are not conformed by law to be religious in this country. Ooh. I say instead of using another form of hate to shut someone off in society, we call them out. We put out their stupidity, their moronic behavior, and let society be the judge. Instead of canceling them, just call them out. Just say, hey, look at what they did. Isn't this stupid? Instead of avoiding them, firing them, pushing them out, and watch society take its own toll on them. It might be worse than the canceling that you did. Society may say what you think it's going to say, and sometimes it may not. Someone tried to cancel Chick-fil-A a few years ago. No. It led to the greatest day, the greatest week, the greatest month, and the greatest year of sales in the company's history. <gasps> Society spoke in ways I am able to really explain here. So do you want to be a judge or a jury and sentence people, or do you want to be part of the solution? In murder cases, we must stop a behavior that society cannot tolerate. No. But sticks and stones may break my bones, and words will only hurt me. In history, that's always been the case. I say let God, society, and frankly the stupidity of the offender yeah. be the judge. You do not want to look hard at this person's offense. What if your offense is the one we're all looking at next? What if you're the next witch that gets hung? Well, from witches, we will work our way to something a little more frightening to the younger part of our population. So we'll invite them all back on this chilling day of haunts, Halloween at midnight in a spooky graveyard. A bat flies overhead, a werewolf howls in the distance. We hear a ghost or a ghoul of some sort call out. But suddenly our smartphone vibrates and we go check in on it and oh, there's something even more frightening there. It is the news. <laughs> we go next to our joy killing moment of the week. The news is too scary for too many people these days. Yes, that's what I found. As I was looking around, I found out that we are actually scared of the news. The news, let's define what it is. The news is a spread of fact and information about what is going on in the country or the world. 
It's not political opinion. It's not your opinion. It's not mine. It's not a talking head like Sean Hannity or Don Lemon. It's an actual journalist reporting from the field without a bias behind the reporting. So let's get to the scary facts about what I found. Reuters commissioned a report that says we are losing interest, disengaging from, mistrusting, and actually being frightened of the news. (laughs) They did this study not only in America, but in 46 countries. And in Spain, the UK, France, and the US, they showed significant drops in the consumption of news. As late as 2015, 67% of people in this country, that's about two thirds, still consumed the news on a regular basis. Seven years later, in 2022, that number had declined to 49%. That is a stunning drop in the number of people here. It was worse in other countries. They are disconnecting from the traditional news sources. They are disconnecting from the network news, the morning news, the newspapers, the radio, but not as much as they're disconnecting from online news sources which is even more stunning. This report was accomplished through the University of Oxford. Several surveys, including the one from Pew Research, have shown that Americans who get their news from social media are less engaged in the political process. In other words, they vote less. They work in less elections. They are less knowledgeable of the issues. We've also seen where local newspapers or TV are disappearing in some local areas. In these places, we now see less and less available candidates on the local ballots. This news is not good for democracy. Journalism is good for democracy, but only when journalism is trustworthy. So is the news trustworthy? If so, who is trustworthy? I am not sure who is the most trustworthy anymore. I cannot tell you for absolute certainty. The one survey that is out about this shows that the Weather Channel is the most trustworthy news source. And I would believe that. But let's think about the Weather Channel. They give you incorrect forecasts probably more times than they give you correct ones. And that is scary stuff on Halloween. To think that the most trusted news source in the country is the news source that's going to give you the most incorrect information. I do like watching their hurricane coverage, particularly Jim Cantori standing out in the mess. He has educated me more about the weather and disasters and government stuff than anyone else I have ever seen on TV. I can see why people trust him over anyone on Good Morning America or the Today Show or the CBS Evening News. Internet news has more competition and therefore has far less standards for upholding the truth. This is why I typically look more at traditional sources. CBS News has repaired their image with me. Some of the others take sides and make no bones about it, which is not really news when you think about it. We shouldn't be taking sides. We should be giving fact and information, which is what I alluded to to begin with. As an example, most Americans never knew Walter Cronkite was very far to the left. He was a far left winger, but he didn't report that way. The dissolution of American unity begins with the end of Walter Cronkite's career. You betcha. I would love to say it ends now. We can all disagree on many things and still live next door to each other. We can like each other. We do not need loony journalists making themselves rich or making their careers off of how scary they make the other side look in the news. If there's anything truly frightening on this Halloween about politics in our country, it is that there's a lot of fake news from both sides. A lot from both sides. A lot on social media. A lot on the internet. Less where it's more apparent, like TV, radio. But think about this. The New York Times reported that 40% of what is on the internet is not even produced by a human. Now think about that if you want to know what can be faked or not. I go back to the incident that set off America's loss of trust in the news. There were four fake documents produced by a man who hated George W. Bush and he produced a bunch of fake military records that Dan Rather then aired on national TV as authentic. With 
Within hours, their authenticity was called into question and CBS eventually admitted they were probably fake and rather was in on it or duped by it. In any case, CBS made no attempt to try and authenticate the documents before reporting them on the air. And they realized that this guy was an anti-Bush nut. Afterwards, CBS cleaned house. They fired Dan Rather, they got rid of a bunch of people. This is the first big coming out party that something was wrong though with our news networks and that something ah. was definitely wrong with the way that we were spreading news. So we said the news is a spread of fact and information. As an example, I went to a small school. This school, there would be announcements every day. There'd be rules, emergency listings, and places you could go to find what you should do that day and printed announcements. There were school newspaper with scores of sports and highlighting leaders and students that did well. Opinions of our teachers and principals. No. There was also the smarter, older, wiser teachers who told you things that were going on. Then there was the young and experienced teachers that didn't know Ooh. anything. And it wasn't even their main career to do teaching. Then there was the school gossip, the uneducated kids running around, spreading silly stuff, lying, usually spread by really popular kids, kids who were rich and wealthy and well-known and just wanted to get something their way. Ah. Then there were the actual kids with brains who didn't spread a lot of gossip. You had to go to them to talk to them to get the real answers about the world. <clears throat> they weren't the chatty Cathy's of the world. They wanted to make something happen by telling you the truth. <clears throat> First of all, let's think about what news sources you see today and how they would land at my school. If you really think about where you would go and are honest with yourself, would they be respected the same way? Obviously the most respected sources for news this day and age would be like the school issued letters, the morning announcements, and I would put that as highly respected. Why would PBS, NPR, the BBC fake any of their news? What would be their angle for lying? I put CBS, Fox, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek in a higher class because they are much more like our newspaper. They have opinions, sure, but when you see their actual reporting, you don't see it as much as opinion. Take the hospital bombing in Gaza. Immediately, many outlets began reporting that Israel had hit the hospital. I was immediately suspicious of this because I saw people conveniently filming and running everywhere and ambulances and people running and it looked all crazy. A typical Hamas response. Then you look at the step down, the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, and you see others. My suspicious nature caused me to turn to Fox because I knew that there was something weird about this whole Hamas response to the Gaza hospital. They began filtering in reports about the truth that Israel wasn't involved from the other side. They also reported Israel did not immediately deny but wanted to look into it. Great reporting from Fox. From these last few news sources, you generally hear more directly from the sources themselves rather than the talking heads. You see pics or videos with less qualifications so you can make up your own mind. In the next category, the teachers, I would put ABC, NBC, The Washington Post because you generally get opinion, but it's mixed with facts, but you do get a lot of expert opinion instead of low-level journalists. They don't mix information with rumors and lies. And then the last grouping, the CNNs, MSNBCs of the world, you get a lot of mixed information. You get a lot of opinion. You get a lot of lies. It's very shocking sometimes. I turn it on there and they'll say crazy, stupid stuff. And I just turn it off because what's the point? A journalist with a degree from Columbia, University of Chicago, or NYU does not impress me when they give their opinions on politics if they don't know anything about politics. Yes. If you want to tell me about why I should report a certain way or what 
kind of microphone I should use for my podcast, I'll listen to you. But when it comes to poli sci, I know more than you. And I want to hear from Condi Rice on foreign affairs. I want to hear from Robert Gates or a respected high-ranking military official on defense. I want to hear from Bruce Babbitt on conservation or endangered species. I want to hear from a real expert, not you. We need more real news. We need to get back to news that we can trust. We have journalists, but they issue their opinions far too much. As far as journalists go, let's take the fear of mistrust and institute the regard for integrity, honesty, and desire to say what you mean and put it back into the news. We will then see an increase in consumption again. We need to simply report and let Americans decide. Let's not think about what the outcome will be when you report the story. Let's think about what we're reporting in the story. Next, I want to welcome back our beloved announcer, Will J. He's only eight years old and... But he knows a lot about our country. Yes. He's overly observant, too, and he's in tune with the world. He's an expert on holidays, and that's what we want to know. One of his favorite holidays is Halloween. Here's a little Halloween fun to end our show today in What's Up with Will J. Will J, thank you for joining us. You like Halloween? Yes. Is it your favorite holiday? Yes. Who do you think is the creepiest politician in America? Nancy Pelosi. What is the most frightful news story to you going on right now? The war. The war in Israel? Yes. And why do you think it's very frightening? Because a lot of people are dying. Are you worried about anything else? No, not much. If President Joe Biden or President Donald Trump were classic horror movie characters, Which ones would they be? Joe Biden would be Frankenstein. Trump would be Dracula. All right. And why do you think uh, Joe Biden would be Frankenstein? What makes him Frankenstein? Well, he's just like Frankenstein. What makes him like Frankenstein? Well, he kind of acts like Frankenstein. And what about Trump? What makes him Dracula? Well, Trump... He done some weird things. Be like his mouth. Well, who is our scariest president ever? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is the scariest one? Why? Because, because of the Revolutionary War. And where is America's most haunted place? Gettysburg, because it's very, very, very creepy. Did you go there? Yes. And if you could dress up as any president for Halloween, who would it be? George Washington. And why would you want to dress because up as him? Because he's the first president. Okay. Well, thank you, Will J., for joining us. And that's it for our show. Thank you for joining us today. We are now on Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Samsung Podcast, Podchaser, and Boomplay. Please like us or make a comment on any platform that you're listening to us on. I would greatly appreciate your feedback. Thank you, Will J, for your participation in the program today. Next week, we will talk about another great American hero, one who used music as his tool for uniting our country. In some circles, he is considered one of the most uniting forces of the 20th century, and his ability to bridge the racial gap was very important. He also made strides in the socioeconomic gap, also did work behind the scenes that he did not care about getting credit for. We will talk about guns in our poli sci for the normal guy portion of our program. We've had a lot of terrible gun violence in the United States this year. And we will talk about our Second Amendment to the Constitution, the NRA, school shootings, and other public 
violence and the limits that some want to put on gun ownership and where all parties fall in wanting to limit or support gun rights. We will have some fun too as we begin to get into the holiday season. So please join us again next week. Yummy. I am Craig Allen. This is Lefty Lucy, Righty Tidy, a Texan caught in the middle. Thank you so much for streaming or downloading this program. Join us again next week for another entertaining look into the world of politics. 